Welcome to the Real Marathon Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the best in film each and every week. I'm Rob Carraher. And I'm Danny Carraher. And today we're going to continue our Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson Marathon um, with the second film that Wes Anderson released, which is called Rushmore. Um, so today we're going to be doing a little bit of a review on that. Um, just to kind of preface this show and next week's show, they're both going both to be a little bit shorter um, in order to accommodate some summer schedules. Uh, we decided to record a couple of these episodes um, a little earlier, and we are going to have a slightly shorter show for each of these weeks before we more than likely will return to a longer format Um in in the coming weeks so uh, that's kind of how this is going to go i did want to start today uh just talking about a topic that has been thrown around um, about the success of films in the streaming era era uh and i think that we're gonna have to as um an industry i think as an industry they're gonna have to decide what constitutes a successful film. As we get further down the line, I think we're going to see less people interested in going to the theater to see some movies if they have options to be able to see that at home. And there's going to be a decision that is made by a lot of these uh, big time distributors and production companies, companies like Warner Brothers, uh, who have decided for this year they are going to be releasing both are their films both in the theater and also on the HBO streaming platform um, on the same day, kind of giving uh, movie watchers a an opportunity opportunity to decide where they want to watch these movies. But the problem with that is that in many cases when a film is being made they're only looking at those box office numbers. And up to this point, there is no numbers being reported in terms of uh, what, how, how well a film is doing on these streaming platforms. Uh, they, they're able to report number of views, but how much, how much is this movie really bringing in to these streaming platforms? And um, how are we going to be able to kind of decide if if these films are as successful as some a movie that's making millions and millions and millions of dollars at the box office what do you think about that danny i feel like with any of the new streaming services they've got um the issue of how can i tell the difference between a new viewer that i've brought to my service and somebody that is already bought into my service and is going to watch any of the properties that I have. And so Disney Plus, because it's pretty new, they can uh, really demonstrate how much revenue they're receiving from shows like any of their new Marvel shows or Star Wars shows, because they're seeing people get subscriptions in real time. Maybe those people will get rid of them after the shows are over, but there's enough content out there now but they're probably going to stick with it. That's going to be harder to measure in the future because you won't necessarily get to see, oh, as soon as we dropped this new show, this many people got a subscription. And so um, 
they're going to have to do it based on views. And that I think gets kind of tricky um, in terms of how you quantify that in a dollar amount. Um, and you have to question too, how much is, is it, are they only getting the service just to watch that one show or is it to do other things as well? And so all of those questions are, are worth asking. Um, another thing that plays into this whole conversation is the fact that there are some um, services that are releasing things on uh, in the theaters, but then on their service uh, as um, a free uh, viewing experience, but then sometimes you have to pay for it. So that also plays into this conversation as well, depending on what platform you're talking about or how long after it's been in the theater, do they make it a free um, movie watching experience at home? So all of those factors, I think, make it really difficult to measure um, a, a movie's success in terms of uh, a financial success. And the question that I'm curious about is, is this going to be our new future? You know, and I would say, I think we're going to be looking at this for the years to come and, and maybe it won't be simultaneous release, but close to simultaneous release uh, after it's released in the theater. Yeah. I, and I agree with that. I think that they, these companies, they're taking some chances this year. I think it's giving them an opportunity to take some chances um, because it may not be as costly as it would in a typical year to take that risk. You see um, just the, the reason that this is this big conversation right now is because In the Heights is honestly the very first big movie that Warner Brothers has really been pushing that has been released on the same day as an opportunity for a lot of people to go to the theaters. Um, they'd been doing, there'd been, there'd been some releases earlier in the spring, but a lot of theaters hadn't been open as much. Um, people weren't quite ready to go back to the theaters. And now I feel like uh, in the coming weeks, we will see more people feel more comfortable about going to the theaters. Um, and so this is a real experiment. And I think Warner Brothers is positioned to be kind of the barometer for this uh, because they are releasing both on the same day. And it's not like it's um, just some throwaway movie. Uh, they have a lot, they have a huge slate this year where they're going to be re releasing some big time movies um, in both formats. And uh, so I, we're going to see the way they react to this. I think the way they react to this is going to give us a um, good indication of how they feel about it and whether or not it's been worth uh, this sort of risk. Um, Disney hasn't really done this yet in terms of uh, releasing a movie either only on the platform um, or uh, only in the theaters, uh, kind of in this new era. Um, and they're going to be doing that with Luca uh, here this upcoming weekend, uh, where they're only releasing Luca, which is Pixar film. And Pixar is probably one of their biggest money makers, and they are choosing to only release it on their, their Disney platform as a freebie. Uh, like if you pay for, for 
their service, then you you get to see this movie for free, which is the first time they've done that because they've released some of their other movies. Well, they did it with Soul, but the theaters weren't open uh, at the same time. So that, that kind of changed everything. But now they have the opportunity to release it in the theaters and they're still moving forward um, with just releasing it on the platform. So that's going to be another really interesting um, film to see how Disney reacts and if they are going to do this again down the line or, or if they're kind of using Pixar as they know Pixar is this this uh, big brand name and people go see movies because they're Pixar, is this going to help um, bring in more subscriptions or is it not going to be enough to move the needle? And I think another question we have to have is, we, we don't know if these films being released on here are what are keeping people uh, continuing to, to pay for the subscription, if they already have it. Um, is, that, is it because Disney is releasing Pixar films only on their platform that people are gonna keep this around? Or um, if they were to start to just release stuff in the theaters, would people start to uh, unsubscribe? I think that if you're and, and Disney has it kind of figured out where they are starting to create a lot more shows that justify people having subscriptions, they're strategically placing their release of those shows. And they also aren't doing what Netflix's, I think, issue is. And it's the biggest problem with their current business model is that they dump their shows you know, and so you just get all of them at once. And so, um, whereas any of the new Marvel shows or the Star Wars show have scheduled release and it allows you to eke out a lot more out of your uh, customers, you know. And so uh, I think Disney then is in a better position to be able to move back to the theater for that reason because they uh, can they know they can rely on that audience staying there on the streaming platform. And then they can still get people into that theater at the same time. So they, and it helps when you have the biggest properties in the world, you know, to, to yeah. be able to do that. But that is what I foresee happening with something like Disney plus, whereas like Netflix, I don't think that um, if you're Netflix, you have a huge incentive to do uh the big movie releases because you're not releasing big movies. The only reason to do it is if there's a filmmaker that's like, well, we want to, we want a, a theatrical release of this movie. But I, I could foresee those still a lot more big movies that get nominated for award season, just release straight onto streaming for, for Netflix and, and, and HBO for that matter too. Yeah. But the thing that's interesting about, uh, about Netflix is they're the only only streaming service that has basically held out. Um, they have a different business plan than every other distribution company because they do not release their movies in the theater to be seen in the theater by the average um, person. Uh, they, they may have like a weekend screening or something like that because they're trying to be in play for awards and there's some rules about playing in theaters um i know like the irishman had a short little stint here in omaha 
um, where they they played in the theaters, but that's not their game plan, um, and that's not that's not their business plan. And so it's interesting um, because they clearly do not feel the the urgency to compete in the theaters with these other production and distribution companies. Um, granted. Netflix also is king when it comes to streaming services and they kind of have their plan uh, for how they're going to do it. But just like you were saying with their shows, um, that's, that's something, something that they have decided to do when nearly every other streaming service continues to release their content on a week to week basis mm -hmm. in a, a similar fashion to the way the TV had been for many, many years. Um, so I think that it, it puts Netflix in a tough position because they constantly have to create new content and be ready to release new stuff to keep their subscribers interested and to change up what current movies they have available to people. Um, I think that something that's going to continue to be, and it, this is just total outsider looking in, I think something that continue, will continue to work for Netflix is it seems like they are able to attract pretty um, pretty quality filmmakers, even though I would say the average quality of the most stuff that's made on Netflix isn't very good. We, I think that there's filmmakers that like, they must like the freedom of what Netflix provides them. Um, and so I think that is uh, kind of the one plus side, but I'm curious to see kind of how it all plays out. And And then the other thing is, that you have services like Peacock and Apple TV that are probably only going to keep getting bigger. Apple TV is pretty small and Peacock is just starting, but um, that, that's going to really cut out TV, <laughs> you know, and, I mean. Yeah. yeah, I think that 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 is the idea, I think, is that they people see the writing on the wall and uh, these companies see the writing on the wall and that TV isn't what it used to be and that they need to get their kind of butt in the game and uh, get a piece of the pie before it's too late. Um, and this kind of a la carte uh, era where people are picking exactly what they want and they are going to cut out all the crap that gets kind of lumped in with that. Um, they may end up spending just as much money, but there's something about choice that people seem to like. And uh, these these companies are starting to kind of catch on to that. And you brought up Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus has been pretty aggressive in the last year in trying to acquire um, content that uh, are going to be a little bit bigger players. And it's going to be interesting to see how they, they roll that out. I know they bought Coda from Sundance, which was the big movie out of Sundance. And I believe they are doing both a theatrical release and a release on their, their platform. Um, so at least from what I can tell thus far, they, they seem interested at least in playing on both sides. I think Amazon is kind of the same way and that they're, they're interested in, um, in having some content that's completely on their, their streaming service. Uh, but also releasing content in the theaters and then maybe doing a release on their platform several weeks after it has already already played in the theaters, kind of giving them their subscribers that first uh, crack at getting to see it if they didn't go catch it in the theaters, which for award type movies, a movie like In the Heights, 
which seems to have proven that it, it isn't going to be able to play with the big time uh, blockbusters when you have these franchises and, um, uh, you know, like kind of the household names or the sequels and stuff like that. Uh, in maybe in a post pandemic year, people aren't interested in going to the theaters for something that they, uh, um, that they, they don't know that they're going to enjoy, uh, which can become kind of problematic. Um, I think honestly, the theaters are expensive and, uh, to be able to go to a movie every single week, uh, is not, that's just not something that's going to happen for the average moviegoer. And so this summer they probably have two to three movies. The average moviegoer probably has two to three movies that they're looking forward to. And if it's not part of a big time franchise, then more than likely they're not going to go see them. Um, especially if they have the option to also see them on uh, a streaming service that they already are paying for. Yeah. And it's, it's something that's going to keep developing, I think, in the next few years. And uh, I, weirdly enough, I think a huge factor in this whole thing is um, the role that blockbuster like, movies like the Marvel movies play in all of this because they are like, I, I, this number is made up, but they're like 80% of the total box office numbers in, in any given year, you know, and yeah, you, you look at if you look at the box office numbers year to year at the end of the year, the top 10 movies that make the most money are franchise movies, um, maybe sequels and movies that aren't quite a franchise yet. Um, and they're but or they're remakes, remakes of movies that people they seem to want to go to the theater to see a movie that they already have some familiarity with. And that they, it, it is a, it is less risky for them to kind of bet their money on, um, on going to see something. People don't want to spend money on something that they don't enjoy. And when you're already paying 10 bucks for a ticket, um, and then you're probably going to get popcorn. And so like, if you're not going to go by yourself and you're going to go with at least one other person, you're probably spending already 30 to $40 at the movies and that can get pretty costly. So people mm -hmm. want to go to, if, if they're going to spend that sort of money, they want to go see something that they're going to enjoy. Um, and that, that is going to be exciting for them. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's all about what they think they will enjoy. It doesn't exactly. matter if they will or you know, they, there's plenty of movies that I think people probably would enjoy that they'll never see. Um, and you can't blame them because it's expensive. And so they have to make a, a choice about what is what is the best option for them. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're going to end this conversation here, but I just want to make one more comment about that kind of last thing that you said. And I think um, streaming services have uh, brought audiences closer to some of those movies where they probably wouldn't have seen them previously if they had to go to the theaters or in the days when you went to movie stores to rent movies um the idea of paying extra for a movie that uh is kind of risky that that doesn't really matter anymore with movies hitting streaming services so for some of these smaller movies that may not make a ton of money um 
this this has been kind of a boom for those sorts of movies. Um, so uh, there, there's kind of weight on both sides. Um, there's always going to be movies that get made that are low budget and uh, that uh, they're going to get made anyway, whether or not they become a box office success. Um, but there are also movies that get a ton of money spent on them. And if a ton of money is spent on them and they don't get that return, then those types of movies aren't going to continue to be made. And uh, I think that's where you get into some issues uh, with some of these um, big time movies like like In the Heights, uh, even though In the Heights, I think, was only a little over 50 million to make. And I'm pretty sure it's going to end up making that money back by the time it's all said and done. But of course, studios, they want to make as much money as they possibly can. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that we're going to be having this conversation, I think, for the remainder of this year and probably for many years to come about uh, how to release movies now that we have all these new options. And um, yeah, it's, it's going to be kind of a fun ride. Yeah. All right. So when we get back from this break, we are going to be talking about Wes Anderson's film Rushmore which was released in 1998. So stick right there. I like your nurse's uniform, guy. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? Well, they're totally inappropriate for the occasion. Well, I didn't know we were going to dinner. That's because you weren't invited. Take it easy, Max. You were the one that ordered him a whiskey and soda. So what's wrong with that? I can write a hair play, why can't I have a little drink to unwind myself? So tell me, Curly, how do you know Miss Cross? We went to Harvard together. Oh, that's great. I wrote a hair play and directed it. So I'm not sweating it either. Can we get a check, please? And we are back. And we're looking at Wes Anderson's second film, Rushmore, which came out in 1998. Um, And this is kind of a brief summary about what the film is about. Rushmore tells the story of a precocious teenager, Max Fisher, played by Jason Jason Schwartzman, whose only real talent is his audacious ambition. He's involved in just about every club at the prestigious high school academy he attends, and yet he does not have the grades to remain at the school. The story follows Max as he tries to use his adultish behavior to charm all those around him. What ensues is an absurd love sort love story of sorts. Um, I think that uh, a good way for us to kind of frame each one of these co- these conversations is to kind of be aware of what was the context in which the uh, the movie came out in, and so um, a little bit of background. This was a movie that uh, Wes Anderson received the independent spirit award for best director um bill murray i believe was either nominated or he received the award as well um i think critically it had mixed success but it had the attention of people within the film industry and this was a um, review from roger ebert or at least on his website of of the movie when it came out so He says, Anderson and Wilson are good offbeat filmmakers. 
They fill the corners of their story with nice touches, like the details of Max's wildly overambitious stage production of Serpico. But their film seems torn between conflicting possibilities. It's structured like a comedy, but there are undertones of darker themes. And I almost wish they'd allowed the plot to lead them into those shadows. The Max Fisher they give us is going to grow up into Benjamin Braddock, which is the graduate character, uh, Dustin Hoffman's character. And it says, but there is an unrealized Max who would have become Charles Foster Kane from Citizen Kane. Um, that is Roger Ebert's view of the movie, um, talking about the, the kind of conflicting aspects of the comedy and the darker aspects. What do you think of that, Rob? Um, I liked this movie quite a bit better than uh, Bottle Rocket, uh, just from an enjoy, enjoying uh, standpoint. I, I thought it was a more interesting film. Um, this is one of the only Wes Anderson movies that I hadn't seen when we started this, um, this, this marathon. And so this was the first time that I had seen it. Um, and it was fun to see J Jason Schwartzman uh, in this lead role. He was only 18 when this movie uh, was made or when it came out. Um, and he, he is very young <laughs> in this film, um, but he was perfect. He was the perfect uh, actor to, to play this main role of Max Fisher. Um, and one of the things that I did not realize uh, prior to us doing this marathon was that um, Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson really started out as co-collaborators -collabor on these first few films. Um, so I went through and I had to look to see who wrote a lot of these films with, um, with Wes Anderson. And he only wrote the first three with him. Um, and then Jason Schwartzman ended up kind of taking over and writing a few with uh, Wes Anderson as well. Um, Noah Baumbach got in there. Um, but I was really intrigued to think about this film in comparison to Bottle Rocket and really see how much of a jump the writing and the direction took from that first film, which came out two years prior to this point. And I think it's a far superior output. Um, the, the craft behind the way that uh, Wes Anderson um, frames a lot of his shots got way better. His editing got way better. He has a lot more um, cuts uh, in this film than, than he had in the previous uh, Bottle Rocket. Um, and it just, it, it feels more polished. Uh, the, the kind of quippy, uh, witty dialogue is starting to take form in this film. Uh, the one that, that the Wes Anderson that you have come to know over the years is starting to become more like that in this film. Um, and the characters are a little more rich. Like they, they all, they aren't as surface level um, as they are kind of in that first film. Uh, you, you definitely start to peel away some layers, which I think makes this far more interesting. Uh, the one thing I do have to say about that though, is it's not quite 
at the point where I feel like it should be. Um, when the film ends, you still, they, you don't have the emotional attachment to these characters that I think the film really wants you to have. Um, because in the end, most of these people aren't good people <laughs> um, and that they don't really do anything to truly have you empathizing for them because they just keep making kind of boneheaded, stupid decisions over and over and over again. And they're kind of just jerks. Um, and it, one of my, one of the problems I think uh, just in general for a lot of Wes Anderson characters is that there aren't true consequences for the actions that a lot of these characters take. And um, I'm going to be interested to kind of look at, look at the other films through that lens a little bit more. But um, in these first couple, it seems like there are some consequences, but because of the way these characters are created, they, almost seem to kind of wiggle themselves out of it being more detrimental. And I understand that this is kind of the world that Wes Anderson is creating, but he, he, he kind of lets his characters get away with stuff that a, the average person would not be able to get away with. Um, so it's far more interesting. This, this film is far more interesting than bottle rocket for me. Um, I ended up giving it, three uh, uh, three and a half out of five stars or a seven out of 10 IMDB. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it is, it's fun to see this progression and to see as he's, they're both getting better at writing characters and making them a little bit more interesting. Um, what do you think about that, Danny? I know I, I said a lot like, there. I know that was great. I feel like I am almost exactly where you're, you're at with this movie but I came at it from a different direction. So you hadn't seen it before and you were like, Oh, and coming from B bottle rocket, I think that this was like a, a pleasant surprise in some ways. I had seen this, I think twice before I watched it for this marathon rewatch and I like loved it those times. And I liked it a little bit less this time. So I gave it a seven out of 10 as well. And for a lot of the same reasons that you, you said, um, I, I think that the humor is a little bit more developed here. Um, it's got a sense of what th those jokes don't feel. And not that Bottle Rocket felt awkward. It didn't. I just don't know if it was deliberately trying to be funny. You know what I mean? Like yep. there, was, there was awkwardness that was funny in the nature of them robbing the bank or robbing the store and all of that. But I don't think that it was deliberately doing that in that way, but the characters in this have so such idiosyncrasies that it makes it just so, uh, I mean, like they're laugh out loud moments and the, just the writing is funny. The best part, one of my favorite lines in it. And I think it was like in the, the trailer for the movie when it came out, but it's when uh, Luke Wilson says, oh, these are OR scrubs. And he says, oh, are they? <laughs> yeah. yeah. This little yeah. At, the, at, at dinner. Um, the other thing that I think this movie uh, has that is, is good, but I, I think wasn't perfect was you talked about the editing. Um, 
he is using like those close-up shots that we kind of know Wes Anderson for, for like us just kind of giving those, us those details um, and establishing those details, which is really cool. But I did feel like the scene to scene editing wasn't as good as um, some of his later stuff. It felt like that, that um, overall story editing wasn't as sharp as he ends up getting. And so just looking at it through that critical eye this time around, I was, I was a little disappointed with that. Um, I, I think the last thing that you kind of mentioned was about the, the way that we don't really like any of these characters. And I would agree with that, but I think the biggest problem is that the main character is unlikable in a lot of ways. And so, I mean, he's designed to be that way, but you, you're kind of like, this guy's kind of annoying. And so that is an issue with the movie. You don't really feel very much for him. He also, because what he is ultimately um, trying to do, which is basically like force his way into this woman's life, <laughs> you know, as a kid, yeah. it's so obnoxious that we can't sympathize with it at, at all. And so we don't feel like that you don't, you don't feel anything for him. If anything, you feel maybe a little bit more for the Bill Murray character. Um, but it doesn't mean that Max Fisher as a character isn't interesting. He's like uh, the, the most interesting aspect about him as a character is the fact that he is, he's protecting this life he has and putting off up this facade of his dad being a doctor and that his dad is this barber in reality. And, um, there's that scene in it towards the end where Bill Murray walks in and he, he introduces his dad and Bill Murray kind of gives this look of recognition. That's so good. Yep. And I think that's a really good moment in the movie. Um, but I didn't feel like there was enough moments like that uh, to, to really make you care. Um, I also think ultimately Max Fisher doesn't really grow as a character all yep. that much by the end of the movie. He kind of is, you know, maybe he's learned his lesson that he was kind of pushy and he wasn't as adult as he was pretending to be. But uh, I don't know that he he has grown that much. Um, so I think that that's a um, that's a, a another issue. I think that uh, one last thing that I'll say before I pitch it back to you is that uh, I think that this movie had some of the similar problems that you mentioned with Bottle Rocket. And this, for whatever reason, maybe it was just the mood I was in when I was watching it, but it, it felt like a long movie to me for it being an hour and 32 minutes. And I think that has a lot to do with the scene to scene editing. I think there's some uh, shots that run just a little long. You could clip them. Um, but that was also, he's, that's kind of part of his filmmaking. He, he kind of lets you just, take it in a little bit and um those kind of centered shots he kind of just lets you look at that as as kind of its own picturesque image and so i i i'm hesitant to critique that too much because i think that that's very deliberate i i agree with that um one of the things i did put down is that uh I also think this film has some pacing issues, just like Bottle Rocket. Um, at the end, it felt like it should have ended um, before that final, before his final play uh, that he does. 
and it, it felt like they had really kind of tied up everything and then they open it back up again. And um, it just didn't feel necessary. And I get it that you're trying to make a full feature movie. Um, so you almost had to add more because it is a pretty short movie overall. But um, at this point in time, uh, in 1998, when this movie is being released, uh, Wes Anderson seems to still have some issues with pacing um, and that 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 needs to kind of cl- be cleaned up a little bit in order for the movie to feel like uh, it, it flows nicely. Um, and that to me was a little bit of a problem. You did mention that uh, the, the character of Max Fisher um, he doesn't grow very much and that's kind of exactly it. Uh, he doesn't. Um, we, we don't really see a true evolution of this character. Um, and, and I think that's where it's hard to have some more of those emotional uh, kind of connections with the film. One thing that I have kind of wrapped my head around a little bit, I think we'll probably talk about it a little bit more with the next film because I think it becomes more extreme in that film. Um, Maybe it's not more extreme because it's maybe equally as extreme is that Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, they seem to be very interested in um, building characters that uh, are interested in kind of awkward relationships um, or like trying to, kind of force these characters into a same world that really have no business being within the same world. Uh, and because you start to get the, this, this feeling of the tone that Wes Anderson is going for, you begin to forgive it a little bit with this film that he's just truly interested in uh having these characters interact that if they were placed in a real world, this wouldn't go down the way that it goes down. Like there'd be no way that Max Fisher and Rosemary Cross, the the teacher that it would ever get dragged out as long as it gets dragged out because she immediately she recognizes that this is not a good thing that he's interested in her, but she continues to kind of let it go down that path. Mm -hmm. Um, This film reminded me a lot of Alexander Payne's election um, Mm -hmm. in kind of this dark comedy where you have this larger than life uh, high school character that kind of is a go getter. And um, in a way, that kind of ambition gets them both into trouble. Um, but uh, like the, the grounded in reality aspect of this film, it, it's not really there. Um, and I think that's kind of where it becomes more of a comedy than a drama, even mm-hmm. though like if, when you really break it down, like there, there's a lot of sadness to what is happening here. I mean, you see yeah. marriages being ruined. Uh, there's a lot of talk about death. You have this kid that kind of is trying to be something that he's not um, and, and wants to be something different and is so just 
buys into this if i keep putting up this facade then people will believe that i'm something greater than i actually am um and you kind of feel bad for his his dad a little bit because uh he even though he seems to have a good relationship with his father like he completely undermines everything that his father stands for until the very end yeah the I, I agree with a lot of what you said about how this this care the characters are interested in kind of bringing awkward. I mean, not that they want maybe to be in these awkward relationships, but just by the nature of they're interested in bringing together characters that don't exist in in any world together. And the other thing that is part of that is how this movie and i think i feel like it's going to become a theme in the movies just based on what i know about the other movies is it is told almost as if it's a play you know we've got these curtains that come in and out as uh kind of transition pieces within the 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 film and that works thematically because he's a playwright uh, max fisher wrote or like does these renditions which those scenes are hilarious by the way they are the, the, they're fantastic, but it is for that reason that I can somewhat excuse a lot of the larger than life, awkward things that don't feel grounded because it doesn't exist in our world. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's presented as a play in, in that way, or, or at least suggests that it's a play in a way, you know what I mean? Yep. Yep. Uh, I, yeah, I, I completely can agree with that. Yeah. in we, we should, we should recognize the fact that there are some absolute moments of genius and the, the kind of uh, preposterous uh, productions that he's able to put on that are on just a completely different level. Um, and the fact that they have like these budgets and like, there's this whole thing with budgets in this movie too, where like he's constantly trying to get money yes. to put on some giant display and they're tearing down the ball field to build an aquarium for this teacher that he's trying to, to eventually get with. And it, it's so funny. Like it is good, good comedy. Um, and, but the way that it's presented is in kind of a dry sort of way. So I understand that it probably doesn't hit with everybody, but I, like I said, I enjoyed this film far more than the last one because it had those kind of over the top moments, um, that, that were, uh, like it, this is ridiculous, but it is a super funny concept. There was one moment, it was little things like, uh, when Bill Murray's character, um, Bloom, he's on the phone and he's having this conversation. He's walking through these kids basketball game and he just like swats the basketball down out of the way from the kid and then just keeps going. And it's, it, it's just a funny moment that is so simple, but it's good comedy. And it's, it's like, I, that was something that I, realized this time watching around uh, watching it is that he is portrayed as a little kid he's like the in the way the opposite of max fisher as a character you're right you know? and that's something the first couple times i watched it that i wasn't really that in tune with because i was just so caught up in the max fisher character but he's totally totally supposed to be that 
his opposite but also his equal in a way you which know? is why he's drawn to max fisher in the first place he's like here's yeah. this 15 year old or 16 year old however old max fisher is um but he's this kid that uh in a way shares some of the same interests that he has um but it allows him to kind of still still be a kid a little bit yeah um and so he it starts out maybe living a little bit vicariously through max fisher but then ends up being this no i'm gonna live the the reality that this kid actually wants to live and give him uh write him a check for two thousand five hundred dollars without even asking kind mm-hmm. of like what he's actually gonna do with it yeah um Anyway, yeah, I, I really liked both of those performances. And uh, you're right, uh, Bill Murray did win the Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting uh, Actor and in part of the 1999 Independent Spirit Awards. Um, and I think it was probably pretty deserved. He it, It's a little bit of an understated performance, but uh, I thought he was very, very good in this. Yeah, I I don't have too much more to say about the movie other than I, I think that it's one that if you I feel like you should watch it with somebody else, like a friend or something. I would I feel like if I'd watched it with you, maybe I would have enjoyed it a little bit more just because I would hear like you reacting to some of those scenes because there are some hilarious moments in this movie. I yeah, I, I think that this is definitely the so but you want to watch it with somebody who's going to enjoy it too. Right. Because if somebody right. doesn't enjoy it, then you're not gonna have have as much fun with it. Um so this right now is a movie that you would have to rent if you want to um watch it. I don't believe it's on any of the streaming services. Um but you can get it on any of the uh any place that you would rent a movie. Um, I gave it three and a half stars, Danny. I don't think you said what you ended up giving it. I gave it uh, seven stars or three and a half stars as well. So, um, yep, I, I still like it. I still think it's good. Um, I think that if you are a Wes Anderson movie, you have to watch this. Or Wes Anderson fan, you have to watch this movie. Perfect. All right. Well, that is going to do it for today's show. Like I said, we were keep keeping these shows a little bit shorter. Um, next week, we will be reviewing the third Wes Anderson movie, uh, The Royal Tenenbaums. Um, and as of right now, that is also a movie that you would have to rent. So if you want to watch that before uh, we do the review of The Royal Tenenbaums, go ahead and rent that on YouTube, Amazon, wherever you watch movies. And uh, be ready to hear our reviews of that film. Until then, have a great week. We'll see you.